Okay, so uh, a question is, um, so I've heard that, um, heard once that if your spiritual life is your focus and the most important aspect of your uh, life, then nothing, everything else will be fine uh, in your job role. Uh, so I wanted to ask, in your job role, how do you practice that? <laughs> do you want to go first, Chidi Shakti? No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in my job role, how do I, oh, this, I mean, there's many different ways. Okay, so maybe I should begin by just saying a bit about what I do. So in, in my role, we deliver training and development to leaders and managers across, well, across, across the entire globe. So I'm working for a company that has, um, we have offices in about 60 countries, so like that. So I, my job role, I find to be incredibly useful for a number of reasons. So my own spiritual mentor, um, he was an expert in leadership development. And one of the things that I've been doing over the last few years is actually bringing in some of the things that he taught about leadership and training when I'm delivering training to the managers and leaders. So we have a curriculum, but there's, more, there's a lot of room to maneuver within the curriculum. So it's very much a facilitated discussion along with different exercises and so on. So I'll, I'll just give you one example. So many years ago, it must have been over a decade ago, um, one of my god sisters gave me a video you know, back in the day when they used these VHS videos. And um, it was a seminar on building trust. So in the seminar, Bhakti Tirtha Maharaj talks about six principles of building trust. And in, in literally most of the classes that I do at work, I also bring in those principles. And to be honest with you, it completely astounds everyone. Everyone's just completely impressed. And I'm just actually, this is just something that's coming to mind because especially right now, in order to facilitate people coming together, there's a lot more need to actually kind of build, build bonds, build connection, build understanding and so on. So that's one way in which I do it. The second is in terms of the training, that, the work that I do, I'm also always looking at the ideas and understandings to see how we can use those in our movement and how we can use those to facilitate the development of Krishna consciousness. That's the second way. The third is as I'm exploring, as we're teaching in the, in the workplace, I'm always looking to see how does our teachings relate to what's being said, right? Because sometimes, and I'll give you a very simple example. We talk about engaging people according to their talents. So we use a psychometrical Gallup Strengths Finder, and it talks about personality types, what people's talents are, and so on. And, and in the workplace, one of the things that we, sh we talk about is how in an organization where you focus on what people are not good at and tell them you, know, you need to improve in this area, engagement goes up by about 10 to 11%. But one of the things that we teach our managers is that when you as a manager understand what people's strengths are and engage them according to their strengths whenever possible, engagement from your team goes up, up by over 70%. And this is research that you can find that's been, it's been there for many, many decades. So I do a lot to connect while I'm, while I'm teaching and learning in the workplace. I bring in different aspects of Krishna consciousness. And then we may like, give people something which is Krishna conscious, whether it's prashadam or other things. There's also some devotees who work in my company. So we'll get together and have discussions. And anyway, there's a whole range of different things. But those are some, some of the things that come top of mind. And then also, actually, I'll add one more thing. So last year, we went, um, so with work, we went to South Africa and Dubai. So we were delivering some training there. So while I was there, I was also connecting with the devotees and did a whole range of different programs in both locations, which was a lot of fun. And of course, the company paid for it all. So that, that's, those are just some things that come to mind. Shakti, over to you. So thank you. Um, so Yeshwati, you were asking, because um, you said that your question, you started off with, we've heard that if we practice spiritual life, everything else becomes really good in our life. And how, how do I bring that into, how do we bring that into our work, et cetera, right? Is that it's, right? It's about putting the spirituality in, in the center of your life. And um, if it's, and then everything else will fall into place if you right. have it in the center. So yeah, then I just, how do you do it? Okay, so yeah, I just, I, yeah, I just wanted to clarify what your question was. So there's two parts to my answer. One, I'm gonna just, I guess, share similar things to Guth Wagner that actually, you know, regardless of what kind of work we're doing, there's lots of ways we can bring Krishna consciousness into the center. And depending on our various roles, some are going to be easier than others. So um, some of you might know that I'm a psychiatrist. So I've been, I, my day-to-day -day job requires diagnosing and treating mental health problems. And 
for me personally, and I just think as a service in general, as a, a job in general, it's a relatively easy way to bring Krishna consciousness and spirituality into um, the way I'm treating patients, um, the way I'm using psychological language to share um, a deeper understanding of who we are. Because ultimately, you know, when there's a disturbance in the mind, at the core of it, there's a disturbance in the self, in some sort of disturbance in our sense of identity, right? We're always fearing something, a loss of something, or not being able to gain something. And that's usually, you know, influenced by how much we hold on to our own sense of validation and identity with it. So Krishna consciousness is really easy and nice to bring in in that, that perspective in terms of the whole treatment and diagnosis, connecting and serving with others and getting them to understand a deeper sense of themselves. Um, there's also the side of bringing, you know, communicating and understanding um, spirituality using um, ideas around and language of the mind. We know from Bhagavad Gita, we have uh, our gross body and senses, then the mind, then the intelligence, and then, then the soul. Uh, but the mind is literally like that pivot, that two-way bridge. So it's a really, it sits in the center. So having a better understanding of what's going on in the mind can help us to also uh, uncover and develop, you know, the deeper aspects of ourselves. So that's, that's definitely there in terms of helping the patients, but also the academic world and professionals in terms of understanding that there's layers to ourselves. And there's a side of helping devotees. Um, you know, we're, you know, it's interesting that you said, you know, if you practice spiritual life, everything's okay. Yes, ultimately everything is okay because that's who we are. And, and Krishna says that actually the soul doesn't experience any suffering. It's any suffering we experience is in the body and the mind. But we've made choices in the past and those choices paint a picture of our life. What Krishna consciousness allows us to see, and that may manifest also in our workplace, it gives us a vision. It gives us a vision coming from a position and a place which is Krishna is constantly trying to see how he can bring us closer to him. So even then, if we're experiencing challenges in our spiritual life uh, or in our work life or in our personal relationships, uh, having Krishna consciousness in our life gives us that vision of, okay, how can I see that this has been arranged for me in such a way that I can actually go deeper, connect more deeply and be more satisfied? So I, I often find that my work's useful to me in terms of helping devotees maybe overcome some of the um, mental and psychological blocks we can have in surrendering to Krishna and taking shelter of Krishna. So yeah, our work can be used in many ways. And if our work is not, if we happen to be in a career or a profession where we can't directly bring in the teachings, where maybe we can't directly share with others, um, then that's still no loss because, you know, yes, we can share the fruits of our work, but we can also ultimately what makes us Krishna conscious is the way we work. What's our motive? What's our purpose? Why am I doing my service? You know, that's what Krishna explains to her. That's the difference between Arjuna at the start of the Bhagavad Gita and by the end, is at the start, he's fighting for reasons of acquiring, you know, the fight's about to start because um, the kingdom's been unevenly distributed and who should be ruling it. By the time the Bhagavad Gita finishes, Arjuna's fighting as an act of love for Krishna, which is very different. You know, nobody would say that fighting is a part of your sadhana, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah, so motive, I think, and purpose, any of us can bring that into our workplace and uh, transform ordinary work and service. That was perfect. Thank you, guys. And uh, it was a really nice introduction to what you guys do as well. So thank you. Hey, Krishna, thank you for answering. Um, there's a few more questions. There's a Nandini Shah, if you want to... Um, are they, you. Do, are they going to ask the questions themselves or do they want them read out? Yeah, I think so. Um, she hasn't mentioned it here, so I'm going to assume she wants it read out. Hi, Krishna. Nandini, are you there? Nandini Shah? No? Okay, I'm just going to read it out. <laughs> um, oh. Oh, sorry. Um, that was my wife. Um, but uh, she'll ask the questions. Sorry, we just swapped from Nandini's account to mine, so there we go. Hi, Krishna. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, the personality, Kali, after he met Maharaj Parikshit and 
was told to reside in the four places where the four regs um, are broken, did he actually physically reside on the earth and have descendants and so forth? To be honest, I don't, I don't recall reading anything about that. So maybe Chidi Shakti will have something on that. So are you referring to the first canto of Bhagavatam? Yeah. Okay, and you're asking if the personality of Gali started a, a family or... And yes. has physically reside on the earth and have descendants and progeny and so forth, or was it just the four places where the four regs are broken, where he still resides today? Okay, I might not have understood your question properly. I'll try and answer it as best as I can. Um, so, Kali, you know, often we hear in, in Krishna consciousness that there's a personality behind everything. Okay, so Kali, Kali is the concept. We understand that the four legs of Dharma, three of those four legs in this period have um, essentially been, you know, destroyed. If we look at the, the, the you know, the bull or the cow of Dharma, Four, three of those legs. So those four legs of dharma, the four legs of that keep society up in a way that we can be both happy here, but also ultimately reestablish our relationship with Krishna. Our four legs are um, of mercy, austerity, uh, cleanliness, and tolerance. Is that right? I think, I think those are the four. And so our principles of freedom represent those four legs. So um, we understand that in um, Kaliyuk, this um, the, the four regulative principles that we have, you know, in terms of regulating our diet, so it's as harmless as possible, you know, no meat eating, uh, fish or eggs, abstaining from intoxicants, and um, uh, not gambling, and also, you know, engaging in sexual activity in an appropriate, healthy, and Krishna conscious way. So when we're looking at gambling, that's related to truthfulness and honesty. So that, that leg remains uh, through Kalyug. And by gambling, we don't just mean the financial gambling. We're also talking about lying and cheating. So Kali is the quarrel of, uh, age of quarrel and hypocrisy. So when we're talking about Kali as there's the Kalyug uh, of qualities, and then there's the personification or the personality. As far as I know from reading the first canto of Bhagavatam, there isn't really a family tree coming from Kali, but there are certain qualities or, or unhelpful attributes that are associated with not living a life which is dharmic. So for example, um, abstaining from eating meat and having a plant-based diet cult cultivates um, mercifulness within us and uh, makes us more kind, which is a natural quality of the soul. So equally, not gambling uh, cultivates truthfulness and honesty. So in terms of your question, in terms of did they act, did, did Kali give rise to any descendants and, and where are they? That's not specifically described in Srimad Bhagavatam, unless, uh, Bhutabhavna, you have anything to add to that? No, I don't, I don't recall reading anything about a, a, a line of descendants from, from Kali. I don't recall that, but that could be just my memory, but I don't recall reading anything on that. Okay. Is that Thank okay, Nandini? Did you have anything off the back of that? Or did we understand your question correctly? Yeah, thank you. That's good. Hey, Krishna, thank you. Thank you for answering. Um, the next question is by Sharina. Um, I think she... She messaged me privately, I'm, so I'm assuming she's going to speak as well. Uh, do you want to unmute mute and ask? Hi, Hare Krishna. Um, so I just wanted to ask about the difference between doing right and doing wrong. How can you um, distinguish between something that's right to me might be wrong to someone else? Um, yeah, that's my question. Okay, do you want to go first? Well, I answered the last question first. You go first on this one. <laughs> no, you didn't really answer it, but I'll, I'll go first anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there's different ways you can look at it, but the basic way would be you, you would do what's in line with Guru Sadhu Shastra, and that would give you a lot of room to maneuver. Because if you're trying to do something and to please Krishna, so the motive is correct, 
and it's within Guru Sadhu Shastra, you're generally in, in, good, in good shape. Yeah, but that will definitely make you progressive in your spiritual life. I was listening to something this morning and it was saying that sinful ultimately means that which is done, but without the, without the connection to Krishna, without the desire to please Krishna. So that would be a very, very broad definition of it. Now, if you want to bring it down to the kind of, um, if you want to bring it down to like the very kind of minute detail, then what you, then you think about the principle that's given in the Shastra, we accept what's favorable and we reject what's unfavorable. Now for that, that has some nuance to it because there's two things to think about. We have different stages on our journey, right? So I think back to when I was, um, when I first came to Krishna consciousness, as a youth, there was just lots of playing, you know, lots of being in, in devotional service, having fun in devotional service, actually. Wonderful projects, association, and so on. And then as I'm older, then it may be more around taking more responsibility, um, et cetera, et cetera. So one factor about what's favorable and unfavorable, it can slightly change as we go on the journey. And it can also be slightly different according to the individual themselves. Right, and what we need in order to be to remain enthusiastic. So when we go into the detail of it, that's often good to kind of bounce off people who've been on the journey for a bit longer than we have as well. Okay, so some things are very obvious. So four regulative principles, you know, no intoxication, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, eating in a healthy way, having a healthy lifestyle, decisions which are more in the mode of goodness. So they're good for you now, and they're good for you even long term as well. And then if there's any nuances in, in the areas that you're not sure of, it's always useful to bounce that off someone else to get another pair of eyes on that. Does that make some sense, Shireen, um, Shireena? Fantastic. Thank you. Thumbs up. Yeah, it does. Thank you. No worries. Jijat, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, just, just a little bit, just that I think when it comes to any considerations to do with society or the body and the mind, what's right and wrong is always going to be relative. So Guthi Pavana's answer that we should go according to Sadhu and Shastra is actually perfect. Uh, because the secondary things, they are secondary, but they're important to the degree that they support the primary, right? So there's going to be some things which are going to change according to time, place and circumstance. But on the whole, if we're directed by uh, strong study of scripture and hearing good relationships with like-minded devotees um, and proper guidance then even the relativity is easier to navigate so hopefully hopefully that um, adds something okay so should we take the next okay I, okay, I guess okay yeah <laughs> Uh, and there's another question which is anonymous. Um, it says in Bhagavad Gita 10.2, Krishna states that the demigods nor the sages know my origin. What is the best way to know him as the origin? Because it says even demigods aren't even even able to grasp this. So how can we? Can you repeat that just a little bit more slowly because you were cutting out on my end? Sorry. Sorry. Um, so the question is in Bhagavad Gita 10.2. Krishna states that the demigods nor the sages know my origin. What is the best way to know him as the origin? Because it says even demigods aren't even able to grasp this. So how can we? Maybe I'll go first. So the bear in mind here is that in our Shastra, it says the demigods are devotees, but not all the demigods are pure devotees. The ability to know Krishna is actually a gift from Krishna himself. So the best way to actually know him is to become a pure servant of the Lord. Yeah, because what happens is the living entity has limitations, so therefore they can only know Krishna's glories to a certain degree, but even what they can know is overwhelming and it's incredible. But that ability to know Krishna is a gift from the Lord himself. Um, in Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna is speaking to Arjuna, he says, um, he says you are, I will give you this secret, right? Rahasim here to do to mum. I'm going to explain to you this transcendental secret because you're my devotee and you're my friend, right? So the whole idea is that as we purify us, as we become free of our envy of Krishna, he will reveal himself according to that, right? That's the whole idea of as you surrender, right? He's, he'll reward us accordingly. And that reward will be the realization 
of his of his personal form, you know, personality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's how. That's the essence of how to know Krishna. He has to reveal himself, just like with you. You reveal yourself to someone to the degree that they are your well wisher, right? When they show that you're well wisher. Without that, even even if you reveal something about yourself, their envy will actually close down their ability to see you as you are. So that's how it works. Hope that helps. Anything to add to the Shakti? No. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for answering. Um, there's another question which once uh, is privately asked. It's by someone from Radha, Radha Prabhu. Um, they're asking, so this is what they asked me to read out. Hare Krishna, please accept my humble obeisances. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Do you have any tips for being able to continue serving Krishna, doing daily rounds and reading whilst also studying for my GCSEs? Thank you. Okay, Shakti. Um, I would say try and create some schedule in your day, some sort of regularity in the day, because um, it can be hard when you're studying anyway, but studying all from home, especially in this lockdown period where you haven't got kind of the routine and structure of going out to see friends, going out into a classroom, etc. So you're having to manage all your time. But try, and the temptation can be that when we're absorbed in one activity on our own in an isolated way, like studying, is that we then, it then starts to bleed into the time you might use for hearing, for reading, um, for chanting. So if you can, um, try and the best thing you could do for yourself is actually have a healthy schedule. You know, Prabhupada created this idea of an Iskwan sandwich that we start the morning with a program which connects us with Krishna. Uh, and then our filling is whatever service you're doing during the day. So your service is to study for your exams. And then the evening we also close with Krishna conscious activities. It can be very easy for your mind to distract you and with stress and tell you that, okay, well, just cut back on your rounds a little bit or cut your reading a bit because you need to study this extra. But what happens is when you're stressed, your mind's not very able to focus, okay? And that imbalance itself makes us less um, receptive to whatever it is we're studying or whatever work we're trying to do. So just try and give yourself that routine and that structure. If it works for you to do kind of a morning, then do your studying and then evening, something Krishna conscious, great. If you want to split it up into three, do something in the morning, something at lunchtime, something in the evening, but try not to fall into the, the tr easy trap of the mind that that one service, whatever it is, so for example, studying preoccupies you so much that you feel that, okay, the rest I can do later. Because what ends up happening is the mind just gets more and more entangled uh, in that anxiety and that fear. And, you know, Guthi Pavna was talking about knowing Krishna by showing our sincere desire to know him. Your study can help you to know Krishna but also developing that vision to see him through the, the chanting and the reading is important because it'll help you to put what those exams, what that studying means to you, not just now, but in the future, it'll put it into perspective. Okay, yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. That's a good answer. Thank you. Um, there's another question which is anonymous. So it's, they're asking, what do you think about the efforts we put into book distribution even though some may say it's not the most effective way of preaching and staying in touch with people you've preached to. Uh, yeah, that's it. Okay. Do you want me to answer that or? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so when I read that question, the first thing that came to mind was that the book distribution is not just about the book distribution. So the book distribution is also an activity that allows a devotee to develop certain qualities, right? So, so literally, when I look at book distribution, what it entails, it's also Trinada piece of Nietzsche. You're going to have to be very tolerant to do that service. <laughs> you're definitely going to have to respect other people or they won't even listen to you. And you have to be ready that people are not going to respect you at all. Right? Some people just walk by. So there's two sides to it. My understanding of how Prabhupada instituted the strategy was that it would simultaneously spread the teachings. It would also help to, it would help to specifically um, bring the devotees through in terms of developing certain qualities. But there was something else. Yeah, that was it. There'll, there'll be something in that activity where it grounds the devotee. Because if we have to develop a sense of humility to progress, 
then one of the easiest ways is to put yourself in a situation which will demand humility for you to do it successfully. And so the book distribution is one side. But having said all of that, it's not an exclusive thing. It's not, the, it's not book distribution or something else. It's book distribution and other things. And even to be honest, book distribution can be done in a number of ways. I know many people, they'll do book distribution amongst their friends, family, maybe even work colleagues. So the point is everything has to be done and we have to see what's my role in that particular chain. So I may be the one giving the book. I may be in some cases the one also doing the follow-up or someone else is doing the follow-up, but it should be a chain because ultimately what we're trying to do is bring people from the material platform and bring them as close to Krishna as they are willing to go in this particular lifetime. So those are my thoughts on that. Okay, Chinshakti, anything to add? Um, the only thing I, I just wanted to comment on is uh, in the question you asked, you know, it may not be the most effective way <clears throat> to give Krishna consciousness. Sharing Krishna consciousness goes beyond the technique that we use. You know, it's very much dependent on the consciousness of the person sharing and very much the recipient of the person, you know, the consciousness of the recipient. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that book distribution is so important is because the books are Krishna's words. So they have the same qualities as Krishna. They're alive, they're able to reciprocate with us on an individual level. And whilst we must do our utmost to share in a palatable way, in a way that somebody can most connect with it, uh, both through language and technique. If someone's really right, ready, there's some sincerity um, or some appetite even, just coming into contact with the books actually has, because it's like coming into contact with Krishna directly, it has a profound impact on that particular individual. And we never know what somebody is going to be receptive to at what point. You know, I, um, one of my god brothers, he shared with us that actually he was distributed one of Srila Prabhupada's small books. I, I believe it was Sri Shabanisha. And he said for the first couple of years that he had the book, he used to use it as a seat on the train. I'm not suggesting that's what we should do. He said he used it as a seat uh, on the train. And he sat on it. And he said one day he decided to read it. This devotee is very, very advanced, very exalted, humble, hardworking soul. Such a huge transformation. So whilst we may not necessarily, you know, I totally agree with Vipavna Prabhu that we should uh, see what our role is and where we feel we can serve most. Uh, but I think we also need to understand that uh, it's not always about technique giving Krishna consciousness. And uh, it may not seem like the most modern way to distribute books. Um, or the most technologically advanced, but that message gets through where there's receptivity and also purity of purpose in the distributor. Thank you very much. Um, there's another question, which is um, from Nehamatji. She's asking, sometimes we can often see spiritual life as just something fun, but when we see that there is a deeper side to it, we can feel a little nervous about wanting to take it seriously. How can we overcome this? Okay, should I go first? Or you, you mm -hmm. first? Go okay. So we can see Krishna consciousness as fun. We see a deeper side and we may feel some nervousness about going deeper. How do we overcome that? The most important thing in spiritual life is association. So it's not one or the other. It's, to be honest with you, if it's done nicely, <laughs> It will always be an adventure. Krishna consciousness will always be an adventure. And it will be, um, yeah, it will be magical. So the thing is, um, to do it in the association of devotees who, fight, who, who, who have both, both, and both elements of Krishna consciousness in, in their life. So they, they're sincere and serious devotees. And serious here means serious about making progress in their Krishna consciousness. And you'll find that they have a taste. For someone to be in practicing Krishna consciousness for a long period of time, it's not possible unless you, you're getting some kind of positive experience from it. So I would say that those two things, being the association of devotees who have that same experience. And then the other thing is, um, yeah, just to really remember, it's not one or the other. 
Krishna consciousness is like a love affair, right? So if you have a loving relationship, it is fun. And at the same time, it is a very important and significant thing. And actually the two things help to reinforce the other. So the fact that it's fun helps you to take it, take it seriously, take it significantly. And the fact that you take it seriously means you gain more relish from it. Okay, so the two things come together, actually. Okay, Shinishakti. Um, this idea of fun, it varies for different people. Well, how we derive our fun also changes. So kind of echoing what Bhutabhava Prabhu is saying about how actually, you know, even relationships, they, they're fun in the beginning, there's a joy. And what does fun mean? That we're enjoying something. There's some pleasure gained from it. So the pleasure is always there in Krishna consciousness. It's just the source of that pleasure changes. So I, I think rather than, it can be unhelpful to us to have a fear that if I go deeper, things are going to be less relishable or less enjoyable. Actually, they always will be progressively, ever increasingly, provided, like Ruth Bhavna Prabhu said, we have good association. We have examples of those devotees who have been practicing from a long for a long time and are still relishing, but also this understanding that the taste comes from somewhere else. It's not necessarily an enjoyment uh, and the fun factor and the experience of it comes not just externally, um, because that, that's true of everything. That's true of anything that we invest our time and energy into. The enjoyment comes from different things depending on which part of the journey you're on. So don't be scared. <laughs> Thank you very much for answering. <clears throat> um, I think now we have Parag Prabhu, if you would like to um, unmute and turn your camera on as well and ask. That'd be really nice. Hey, Harry Wong. Um, thank you both for your answers. I just wanted to ask a little bit about reading. Um, so I've done a lot of studying, but I haven't ever read novels and books. So when it comes to reading things, my attention span feels just so short. Um, I know you've expressed there's a lot of power in, you know, these spiritual books and I've often felt that, you know, but I struggle to finish any books. Uh, have you got any advice? Mm. Okay. Do you want to answer first? Um, I just have a question off the back of your question. You said you used to study, but not reading novels, etc. What, what motivates you to get through the studying book? Is it, so do you, Parag, do you literally not have an interest unless there's a purpose or if you could just share? Good question. But, um, I've done quite a lot of studies. So I did a dental degree and then I did a doctorate um, and it wasn't my passion, but I knew I, what the job I wanted at the end. So the job that I'm doing now is the job I wanted to do. And that was part of the process. Um, so it, I just thought when it came to kind of Krishna conscious books, um, I've loved reading them, but sometimes I read so slowly um, that after a few pages, my attention span just goes. So even a small book could take me a, a really long, long time to read. So often I don't get to the end of it. Mm. I mean, there's, there's, there's two things here. One could be a, a simply practical issue. And I think it's important that we as individuals identify where we have our own personal practical struggles with either reading or hearing, etc. So if you have a practical struggle with reading itself, then you could mix it up with a combination of reading books or hearing an audio book um, or just breaking it down into smaller chunks. Uh, given the way you've explained your approach to reading, there's probably going to be certain things which, because they hold your interest, you're going to be able to keep focus for longer. Uh, and other things which, like most people, if you're not finding that particular subject so relishable, it might be harder to engage. Um, so that's the first side. Address the practical side for yourself in terms of what you can digest and and manage and mixing up between a combination of audio uh, plus visual. Uh, one other thing that I've found personally that's really helped me um, is reading as if I need to explain it to someone else. So that's a really good way of optimizing our understanding, uh, serving other people, and also keeping our focus on what we're reading. Uh, and it also in encourages us to share. Uh, so you could try that. That read in such a way as if you're, if you're about to explain it to someone else. And the other thing is, as the other supporting um, activities of Krishna consciousness, like associating with others, um, like doing service, and primarily actually chanting, as our chanting gets better, more sincere, more regular, then actually our reading improves because 
And all of these activities, much like we were talking about the dis book distribution, they're beyond just the restrictions that our body and mind might place on us. They're ultimately driven by our sincerity to know Krishna. So having the understanding by which to come to Krishna doesn't really come from how many books we read or how quickly we read them. Ultimately comes from how much we want to know him and how much we surrender. And our japa chanting, it fuels um, our receptivity to what we read. It fuels the way we engage and connect with those words because they're just not, they're not words of an ordinary person or just English language. Uh, they're beyond just the limitations of our own intellect. Um, so I would say, you know, if often chanting nicely just before reading can really open up uh, that side and receptivity to, to reading. I mean, Pakti Dilta Maharaj, he would speak about this idea that actually if we chant well, then even reading a short passage gives us more realization than perhaps not chanting and just focusing on reading. We're not necessarily going to be able to absorb uh, even if we read more, because the japa connecting with Krishna with his name actually opens up our spiritual intelligence. So whether our ability to read is brilliant and we can do four or five hundred words in a minute or whether we're a slow reader, it's that receptivity, what we're actually getting out of those words, which is maximized. So hopefully that helps. Good Bhavna, do you want to add anything? No, I think that's a good answer. Thank you very much. Krishna, thank you. Um, there's another question which is on um, Facebook. It was from Ravi, Ravi Prabhu. It's, um, he's asking, sometimes he feels like he's fed up with spirituality. Is he missing something? Um, Buddha Bhavana Prabhu, yeah, he's asking, asking Buddha Bhavana Prabhu directly. You could repeat the question. Sometimes Good, I was going to pass that one to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, my question is sometimes I feel like uh, I'm fed up with spirituality. Am I missing something? Yeah, the thing is, you have to ask yourself, why? Why do you feel that way? So is, is it because we're not engaging in the practice properly in good association? Is it because we made some kind of offense? Is it because we don't really understand why we're practicing and what the goal is? So I think the first question, he has to really introspect and maybe through association of those who are also devotees who are around him, trying to understand why do you feel that way? Because it's unlikely that he always feels that way. So when are, you, when are you feeling that way? And what's happening in your life at that time where you feel that way? When are you feeling more enthusiastic? And that's why generally, especially with questions like that, it requires some guidance. You see, so we can be on a platform to answer these questions, but there could be a whole range of different reasons that sit beneath that. So I think along with his introspection, I would, I would suggest that he should have a conversation with some of the devotees who've been practicing a bit longer than he has, who are a bit more mature, and then together try to understand what's behind that, that lack of enthusiasm and then to address the root cause. Anything you wanted to add to the Shakti? No, no. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Prabhu. Um, there's another question from the um, Dhruvanath Prabhu. So he is asking, What's your greatest experience and realization where Krishna has shown his personal and reciprocal nature? <laughs> Go ahead, Pitvarma. Go on. I need some time to think. Hmm. Um, so can you repeat the question, please? Sorry. Um, so the question is, what's your greatest experience and realization where Krishna has shown his personal and reciprocal nature? Hmm. Um, yeah, so generally, generally, you know, devotees don't always get into some of the detail around that. Well, I will say, I mean, there's just so many things. Sometimes in Krishna consciousness, um, so I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example. I remember um, the first time I came to understand that Bhakti Tirtamaj was, uh, was my spiritual master. 
So before, one of, there was a book that I read before I took to Krishna consciousness. And the book was a story about a young man who meets a guru at a petrol station. And the guru basically shows the young man, says, you're not really happy. And then he starts him on this whole kind of spiritual journey. And, um, and then, so that, that's one thing. And then also, um, I, was, I used to go to this group. It's like a, like a metaphysical society. And they would talk about social situations, but also like mystical things and all that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking that when I came to Krishna consciousness, I remember thinking that someone should write a book talking about like the metaphysical and the mystic side of life and use it as a means to preach Krishna consciousness. And then when I took my friend Vasudev, we came to the um, Sunday feast of the temple in London. And then the book on the shelf was Spiritual Warrior One. And, and I actually said to him, I said, someone's stolen my idea. And actually, the other thing is, I was reading a book before I became a devotee. It was by a humanist. Um, I, if I remember the title correctly, it's called The Art of Loving. The, the, person's, the author's name is Eric Fromm. And in the book, he talks about different types of pseudo love, right? Like, well, you know, not real love, unreal love. And then, you know, so he's distinguishing between what real love is and what is false love. And I remember thinking that someone should write a book talking about relationships and love and, 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 diff and using that to preach Krishna consciousness. And then Spirituary 2, you know, was on that topic. And then that happened for a few books. And I remember writing to my spiritual master and I, and I was just sharing with him that it seems to me that there's some kind of connection like that. So I, I'll just share that as one example. Um, Shinshati, anything on your side? It's, it's so funny and nice that you shared that because I was going to share something really similar uh, and say some similar things. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, we don't normally share kind of the, the, the things that are in response to the question you asked, but I guess you know, speaking about how the spiritual master manifests in our life is a really nice way to reflect on Krishna reciprocating. I had also a similar experience to Bhutta Bhavna when I uh, first came to Krishna consciousness, it was more around the topics in Spiritual Warrior 2. But I think for me, um, when the time at which Vaitya Maharaj manifested in my life and how I recognized that to be Krishna's beautiful reciprocation with me was that, you know, we often hear that Krishna knows what we need and it's not just about what we want. And I had for a, a long time, probably since I was a child, felt very strongly like I had a purpose and it didn't matter what I came across, it never really held my interest for very long until I came to Krishna consciousness. And then when, um, and even at the time that I came across Paisi just before, in the weeks before I met him and decided that this was my spiritual master and that's it for me, Krishna consciousness is, is something that I'm going to serve this personality and practice Krishna consciousness for the rest of my life 24-7. This is what I want to do. Even the weeks before I met him, I wasn't aware that I was really seeking a guru, uh, really seeking that guidance. I just knew I loved Krishna consciousness and that's it. I want to do this forever. I had no, I was, you know, somebody mentioned this idea of fun. I was having fun in Krishna consciousness. You know, young student, lots of nice prashad, dancing, nice young people, especially in PS. It was great. Um, but the fact that literally within a few weeks, a person like Paisi Maharaj, who actually very immediately, I felt a very, very strong connection with, and I thought, this is my guru. I really felt that this is Krishna looking out for me because I didn't know I needed this, but you did. And you sent him despite my own attachments to just having fun. Uh, and allowed me to kind of accelerate uh, my connection. So Krishna's always active and uh, always reciprocating. But yeah, thank you. That was a nice question. Thank you for answering so, um, so nicely. Thank you so much. Um, there's another few questions. So, sorry, let me just quickly find them. Um, so there's a question which is also anonymous. Uh, why is Krishna blue slash black? Okay, shall I answer that? Yeah, go ahead. So I remember hearing this in the class of the man. <laughs> that, that complexion is, um, is the complexion which is most attractive to the gopis. 
actually. So that's one of the reasons given by the proofs of charge as to the complexion of, of Krishna's body. So yeah. Shishat, anything to add? Um, I think all the answers I've heard are, are along those lines, like it's the colour that's most, most attractive to the gopis. Um, I've also heard from previous acharyas and in other classes that this is um, Krishna's choice. He has his free will. This is the colour he chooses to manifest in that particular mood as the mood of the enjoyer. And that's the colour of enjoyment, the complexion he accepts as the supreme enjoyer. And, but he comes in many complexions, doesn't he, in his different incarnations. So, yeah, it's, it's a simple question and a simple answer, but ultimately we'll never know <laughs> until, until you meet him face to face. And then we probably have lots and lots and lots of reasons as to why he's that color. Thank you. Thank you very much for answering. This is another um, anonymous question. So, in Goloka Vrindavan, does the rasa of being protected by the Lord exist? since there are no demons. Also, does the lifting of Govardhan pastime take place in the spiritual world where everyone takes shelter of Krishna? Does taking shelter for protection take, take place at all? Do you want to begin, Shishakti? Um, yeah, I can say a few things. Um, so yes, in Goloka Vrindavan, there aren't demons per se, as we have in Bhumi Vrindavan Leela, where the demons represent different anarthas uh, and different qualities that can inhibit our spiritual life. Um, but those kind of personas or personalities can exist without having a demonic or um, an attitude towards Krishna where they're against him. But the idea that is there Krishna protecting us? Yes, that's there in, you know, we have five flavors of a loving relationship with Krishna. There's neutrality, servitude, friendship, parental, and uh, conjugal love. And if you look at friendship, parental, and uh, conjugal love, there's, if you look at personal relationships, just even if you compare them to here, there is always some element of protecting the beloved. Either Krishna is protecting us or we're protecting him. But it's not necessarily from um, fearsome demons. It's not necessarily for preservation of life, although that depends on what role you play. Like we hear about Mabisha, she worries so much about Krishna's soft butter-like feet getting pricked by pebbles or thorns <coughs> in the forest. Whereas the, the rocks, even the rocks in Vrindavan, they melt when Krishna steps on them to, so that he doesn't feel any pain. So there's even a protection coming from the rocks. That mood of protection is also there, whatever comes of service. But they, they manifest differently in different um, relationships. I'm going to get some water. Uh, Prabhu, could you take over? No worries, no worries. Saint Krishna book, um, there's a pastime of the cowherd bird. <coughs> I think it's Agasura, where they're walking into the mouth of the snake. I think it's Agasura, anyway. But they, they're very comfortable doing so because they, they said the thing that Krishna will be, you know, he'll give us shelter, will be okay. That's the first thing. Secondly, the Acharya is right that there's what's called Nitya Leela and Naimitika. So Nitya Leela are those pastimes which are taking place in the spiritual world. And then we have what they call the um, Naimitika Leela, which are the occasional pastimes. So in Boma Vrindavan, there are certain pastimes that take place on earth that do not take place in the spiritual world. Okay, so these are like the what they call naimitikali, the occasional pastimes. So, for example, in the spiritual world, Krishna is eternally a certain age. So, the Damodar Leela, this is Boma Leela. But what happens in the spiritual world is even though those pastimes don't take place in the spiritual world, they have the remembrance as if they did. Okay, <clears throat> so anyway, I think those are just a few comments on that whole point of protection. Um, so, the, the mood of protection is it's not the prominent mood though. See, so in the different in the different um, rasas, the parental ras is where the parents feel that protective mood towards Krishna, okay. And then the friendship, there's that sense of equality or fraternity, etc., etc. So those are just some comments on that particular point. Thank you, um, thank you so much for answering. There's another question from Sriyamathji. She's asking how to do your service in Krishna consciousness selflessly 
like and what she does is curtain so how can her curtain be sincere for krishna you want to go first Shakti? no you go ahead i'm still recovering <laughs> how to do your service selflessly well the thing is there's, there's so selfless it starts with motive and then it expands outwards <clears throat> What, hap- what Krishna does often is if you try to do your service selflessly for him, seeing that your intention is to be selfless, he'll help you to go in that direction. And one of the things that he'll, he often shows the devotee is that the more you act selflessly, the, more, the happier you'll be because it's the constitutional position. So what comes to mind is the, um, the statement in the Bhagavatam, yatma devotional service should be unmotivated, and uninterrupted, and in yayatma supersidity, in order to completely satisfy the self. So what happens is that the more a devotee engages in devotional service without ulterior motive, actually the more fulfilled they will be, you see? And when the devotional service is done with a more kind of self-centered purpose, actually the person derives less, um, less fulfillment from those activities. So if you notice and reflect on the times where you were able to act more selflessly, you will see that actually you gained more in Krishna consciousness and you were actually happier and you were also spiritually much stronger. You know? and, it's, and it's also Krishna's way of inducing that mood in us by showing us if you act for me selflessly, you, you, the experience of it is, is far superior than having your own plan. But in another sense, ultimately it boils down to faith. Because in the material world, we don't necessarily have faith in others. So we think that if I do what this person tells me, I will miss out. But the whole idea of Krishna consciousness is that you practice doing something for Krishna and you see consistently how he reciprocates and looks after you. And you come to understand that if you do what he says, in the way that he says it, he never lets you down. So it's a practice, right? So if I try to serve sincerely, but... The one, the one thing I'll, I'll call out as a caveat here is it should be done wisely. I've seen many devotees in Krishna consciousness who thought they were being sincere, but they were being kind of like um, reckless. Right? So then what happened was they don't execute devotional service wisely and therefore they have difficulties and therefore they come to the wrong conclusion. They think, well, I tried to be selfless and look where I ended up. So then they pulled back. No, the idea is to be sincere and also to try and do things wisely, okay? And in that way, sincerity and also, you know, wise application, then you'll really see reciprocation from Krishna. The tendency is that if devotional service is done with sincerity and done wisely, it tends to mean that you're doing devotional service more in the mode of goodness and you have clearer reciprocation and you're more easily able to understand that Krishna is reciprocating with you and with your sincere service. Okay. Anything to add, Jiddy Shakti? No, that was such a nice answer. Um, I'm just wondering if just to say a little bit more about this point of when Krishna sees that we're sincere, he makes more obvious to us and clear to us where our distractions lie. Because we look at this word selfless, which self do we want less of? Okay, it's the temporary self we want less of. And, you know, for example, you gave the example that you do kirtan. When we perform kirtan, especially if you're leading a kirtan, there's many people listening. But the most important person listening is Krishna, right? Uh, And in any service that we're doing, there are many people receiving that service and watching. But ultimately, who's receiving and watching is Krishna. But when we're sincere, like Peter Bhavna Prabhu said, you know, Krishna may actually really show us where the insincerities might lie or the, where the distractions may lie in the mind and ego, which can be very uncomfortable. <clears throat> and what can happen is we either resent ourselves for succumbing to mistakes made by the mind and false ego, or we try and dismiss them and pretend that they're not there. And both can really block our path and progress. Because if we resent ourselves for making mistakes because of the mind and ego, we don't progress because we don't address those things. Well, if we dismiss them, we don't progress because we dismiss those things. So 
this idea of doing it wisely is really, really, really lovely advice from uh, the Wisely also means being able to understand where the mistakes are coming from and seeing them even if it's uncomfortable. If we're trying to clean a room, we have to look at the dirt that's there to be able to clean it. And sometimes when you start cleaning a room, maybe it doesn't look that dirty, but as you clean it, even more starts to manifest because you're actually starting to make progress. Uh, and actually this is a blessing. It's a real blessing from Guru and Krishna when we have the ability to see our faults, but not get bogged down by them or ignore them. Um, so yeah, this can help us to be more selfless. I'll just add to that, just inspired by what Chinshati was saying. So one thing that we can do is introspect. I, I remember, I think I heard this, it was Janvi speaking about how this advice from Mother Yamuna, which was when you're doing, I think it was from Mother Yamuna, when you're doing Kirtan, there's you, there's the audience, and you're all centered on the holy name together. You know, so, so it's not that the audience is focused on the, on the person who's leading the Kirtan, but all of you are looking together at the holy name, and the holy name is in the center. And I thought that was just a really powerful, powerful point. But it's also very useful <laughs> with people who know us, and who will tell us the truth and who we, who we trust. And that's why relationships are so important. We can go to them and just say, you know, what, what, do you think, what do you think I'm doing well? What do you think I need to work on or improve? And it's really beautiful when you have close relationships where you can be really honest and open because then you can be really honest and open about both the positive things and those things which are not so positive in the heart. But you have to do that with devotees who are mature you know, and who are not going to take advantage of that, but who are just going to encourage you and acknowledge you and kind of at the same time lovingly help you to move forward. So in Gita Nagri, um, when I, the, the, the place where my spiritual master stays, he had, uh, he had um, this little framed image and it's a, it's a statement. I can't remember the full details, but it's a friend, but it says something along the lines of a friend is someone who knows where you've come from accepts you as you are as you are so that means good and bad while lovingly in inviting you to grow and that was a very very powerful thing so they understand where we've come from they've accepted us as we are but they as us as we are good and also not so good and at the same time they lovingly invite us to grow forward you know so if we can have those kinds of relationships it makes, it makes, to be honest, it makes Krishna consciousness much easier. And in terms of a Shastric reference for that, this is one of the six loving exchanges. Revealing the mind, right? And hearing, hearing about Krishna, including hearing about how we continue to work on our Krishna consciousness in order to improve. So it's very, very powerful. And one other thing on that, I remember being in the manor and there was a seminar given by Bhaktitya Tamaraj. And what happened was, he got the devotees to write prayers to Radha Gokulananda. And the prayer was expressing to them the thing that we're struggling with at this time in our spiritual life. You know, and then what happened was we were in Prabhupada's darshan room and then he asked devotees if they, whoever wanted to read out their prayer. So a few of us read out our prayers. And he said something that I remember very clearly. I think this was 1998. He said to those people who read out their prayer out loud, just by kind of revealing the mind, in that sincere way, it helps to shift some of those karmic patterns, it helps to free us a little bit of some of that particular kind of tendency. You know, so it's a very, very powerful process, but it works also on the basis of humility, on the basis of being very honest, very honest with ourselves, very honest in good association. And in that way, we're accepted as we are, so we're held. We're held by that kind of acknowledgement and acceptance, but we're also lovingly encouraged, yes, Let's, let's improve. Yeah, just I'd share that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think we don't have that much time. We only have time for one more question. Um, it's anonymous. And it's, um, if you don't mind sharing. It's a, what, sorry, the session not till half four. I thought it was till half four, no? No, it's four o'clock. Four o'clock, okay. Um, Yep. So the question was, if you don't mind sharing, what drew you to to becoming becoming disciples of His Holiness Bhaktivedanta Swami, and what are the most important lessons you have learned from him? Okay, you should go first to the Shakti. Hmm. 
Well, okay. Um, with Barbara, why don't let me go first? Uh, get me back now. <laughs> okay. Um, what, what particularly drew me to Bhaktivedanta Swami? I think the main thing that drew me to him is that he walked his talk. He, everything he taught, he lived. So, you know, what, there's so many people who can speak nicely, who can share so many things, but there's very few people who live those things. You know, he was like Srila Prabhupada in that sense. Um, you know, when we hear about what Srila Prabhupada was like, one of the standout things about Srila Prabhupada was he lived his teachings. So with, with Pakistan Maharaj, he definitely lived his teachings and, you know, and was embodied this idea perfectly that a guru is always a disciple first. You know, he taught us how to be effective disciples, how to be good disciples, how to have strong relationship with him. Uh, he showed us how to reciprocate. He showed us how to have good relationships with each other. Um, he dealt with challenges. You know, when we hear about, like a lot of his books are about how to develop forgiveness, compassion, um, become free of envy. He practiced those things himself. You know, we saw this up close and personal when, you know, just because somebody's a sannyasi or a guru doesn't mean they're short of challenges. In fact, I, I would say their life is even more difficult because you're under everyone's scrutiny all of the time. Your life is for others. But he would handle everything with so much grace, with so much patience, forgiveness, and always putting other people first. Uh, and so I found that uh, extremely attractive. I found that... Um, that he was a very easy person to hear and submit to. Um, he was a wonderful person to be around and to serve. And it was just amazing to see how he enlivened other people just by his presence. He really was a carrier of bhakti. You know, I remember um, towards the end before he left, uh, the hospice nurse would come and visit him. And she would come more often than she needed to. And he would always give her this wonderful smile. And I remember one of the last times that she visited, she said, you know, everywhere I go, I'm usually going to uplift the person I'm going to see because they're about to leave their body. She said, but when I come to see you, she said, that smile you give me, I'm just coming to see you. She says, it just, it makes my week. It makes my day. She said, I feel like I come here for nourishment. So, um, you know, marriage would, Maharaj and even the way he writes, he was never scared to share himself. He, you know, you look at the books like The Beggar and those books are his personal prayers. They, they are his own personal meditations, his own crying out to Krishna, his own crying out to his spiritual master. And he shares them with all of us. And he was like that even before he was leaving. His final journey wasn't something that was a private Thing that he did on his own he made sure that as much of his experience and journey was available to other people was made available so yeah for, for, for me um, I, I could sit here and talk for hours about why he's so amazing and wonderful but that's just a little bit <laughs> before this goes on till midnight <laughs> so yeah okay so from my side I think yeah so I already spoke about the connection so I, it was kind of very clear that we had a connection with this person. So that was the first thing. Um, <laughs> what did I learn from my spiritual master? I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Every day we're learning so many things. Yeah, just how powerful Krishna consciousness is, how dynamic Krishna consciousness is, how devotees should be compassionate. Um, I wrote to him once. I wrote to him once and I said um, it was something on the, along the lines of I could see that the, the different devotees, part of, part of their connection to a guru, not, not in every case, but in many cases, is because a guru has certain qualities that that person may have in some, you know, maybe some seed form, but they're also meant to further develop, you know, so there's something about the the alignment between the spiritual master in terms of his mood and the mood of the disciple as well. So I remember reading and I remember writing something like that to him and he, he actually liked that. He kind of very much accepted that. And I think he even spoke about that sometimes as well, that there's something about the alignment. 
and I, I have some God family, like one of my God sisters in particular, and she was talking about how, because she's been born in the movement, and she can often tell if she meets a devotee and they're initiated, she can tell who their guru is because there'll be something of that mood of the spiritual master, you know? So yeah, that, especially if they pick, if the disciple takes on that particular flavor. I think Samaj was talking about this in something that he wrote or a class that he gave. So for example, if you see Radha Maharaj's disciples, there'll be very much an emphasis on being the servant of the servant, you know? And then Bhakti Tirtha Maharaj's disciples, you know, there's a little bit more of a kind of leadership bar and a little bit more, we're going to do something a little bit revolutionary, you know, that kind of idea. And everyone has their own thing. Obviously, there's variance within each God family. I'm just pointing that point. I'm just making that point. Yeah, so I, I could, the signs were there that we had an internal connection. That was one thing. And I think what I learned from him, what, I le what I'm still learning from him is strength of character confidence, boldness, and innovation. Yeah, I think that those things are the things I'm still learning. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, that's really beautiful. And I guess that this is now the time where we have to end this Q&A, unfortunately. I really, really wanted to ask some questions on my own, but um, I guess we're running out of time. Um, yeah, so I, I really want to apologize if I've made any mistakes. So please forgive me for, for causing any offenses or um, doing anything wrong. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for being here today and giving us your time and association. Um, yeah, Hare Krishna. Thank you. Hare Krishna.